Well, if you have your Bibles with you, could you turn to our reading, Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, and the verse that the Lord has laid on my heart is the 11th verse there, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment, so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here? without a wedding garment, and he was speechless. He was speechless. Perhaps um, one of the most popular uh, television shows on at the minute is called The Traitors. Now, some of you are nodding. You've probably seen it. Some of you have seen it on your news apps because it's quite, quite popular, and it, the ethics behind it have been questioned by some, and maybe here this morning you don't approve of it at all. That's all right. I'm just using this as an illustration. And it's set in a Scottish castle, and there's a murder mystery game. It's a game, okay? And the contestants must figure out who in their midst is an imposter. We played a similar game on Friday, in Friday Night Live. Whatever you think of the show, it's a fascinating study, isn't it, of human nature. Two-faced, treacherous, lying. And yet at its heart, isn't it, is a deep longing, isn't it? A deep longing to trust someone. That's a universal longing. And more than that, a deep longing to rest and feast with one another in peace. You notice in the show how many feasts there are, or meals. Each morning, the remaining contestants gather round an ornate breakfast table, and the knock comes, and they see who's going to come in. And they're so, they don't eat well, really, because they're so suspicious. Is he faithful? Is he an imposter? You know, he or she looks like them, but are they really faithful? He, you might look like someone, but you might not be faithful. My friends, come with me to Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth is teaching, isn't he, in Matthew 22. Try and follow me now as I give a quick praise of the parable. Following his Hosanna, Palm leaves swaying, triumphal entry into the city of David. Verse 23 of chapter 21, notice he's interrupted by the religious men, isn't he? We call them Pharisees. They were the top notch of Jewish society. They, were, they, they kept the law to the, to, the, to the dots, you know. He's interrupted by them. And they tell him, what authority do you have, Jesus of Nazareth? What authority do you have to teach like this? And this parable that we have before us is the third in a series of rebukes, actually, to the Pharisees, okay? In Matthew 21, verse 43, his message is clear, isn't it? Look at it now. I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation, or maybe a people, a people, 
bearing the fruits of it. It is then that Jesus takes them in their mind. They're gathered around him. He takes them to a parable, a story, a picture, message used. uh, And he takes one of the most common images in Judean culture, the wedding, the wedding. And, And he zooms in towards the end of this wedding on this imposter, doesn't he? This man who shouldn't be there. So first of all, I want us to consider the invitation to the feast this morning. The invitation. Jesus was a master teacher, wasn't he? He chose his images well. And I want you, we're sitting at his feet. I'm not Jesus, but I'm pointing to him even this morning. And he talks about an invitation, doesn't he? Look there in the, in the second verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited. It begins his parable by drawing you into this idea of the invitation. In fact, if you look at what I read, the first ten verses keeps coming back to invitation invitation, invitation, and the different responses to the invitation. Just quickly, a Judean wedding is not the one-day affair that we're used to. You may know this. In Jewish society, the wedding banquet was one of the most joyous, wasn't it, occasions. It would last for a week sometimes. The betrothed would, uh, their parents would draw up a marriage contract can you imagine if this happened today? <laughs> um, the couple was considered married at this point, but they would separate until the actual time of the ceremony. The bride would remain with her parents, and the groom would go and prepare the home. And only when that was ready, when the house was ready, he would come for his bride without notice, and the mar- marriage ceremony would take place. So what you see in here is that this isn't a one-day affair, a Judean wedding, friends, okay? This is a long time. And similarly so, the events depicted is not one day spiritually. What they're pointing to, it's not one day. Look at verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Those of you who are Christians, you'll know that hymn, won't you? Far before time... Before creation's dawn, before the sun and the moon and stars were born, salvation's way for sinners, lost and done, was counseled forth by God, the three in one. And the story of the Bible, which we see a little bit in this parable, is a love story, isn't it? This parable is a little window into the grand love story of the Bible It had a sad beginning, you know, the love story. Humanity rebelled, and you rebel with them, our first parents. They were barred from paradise. And what was at the heart of Garden of Eden was this idea of God providing for his children, wasn't it? The garden was a feast, and the host was present. But humanity rejected their first love. It's so sad, but he promised that one day he would redeem them. 
God remembered his people. He chose Israel. He gave them a name. He would be their God. They would be his people. And you'll remember from Sunday school, they wandered through the desert, didn't they? And they were given laws and instructions. And one of my favorite ones is the fellowship offering. Bear with me, we will get to the text. The fellowship offering was optional. The worshipper could eat of the sacrifice. He could bring his family into this feast. God was there with them. A little taster of God's love story plan. Many years later, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to an even better feast than the fellowship offering. Do you remember Isaiah 25? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. If none of this makes sense to you this morning, don't worry, Jesus gives us a parable, doesn't he? God arranges, verse 2, and God invites you, Romans 1, the Jew first, the first part of the parable, the Jew first, and then the Gentile. They would not come to the marriage, the Judeans, and they still didn't come, did they? When Jesus of Nazareth walks into history and he invites them, doesn't he? He's there, the bridegroom himself. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave us his only begotten son. And he's walking amongst them. And do you remember what John said? He came unto his own. His own received him not. That's the understatement of the millennium, isn't it? They crucified him, but not even a cross could get in the way of this cosmic love story they still didn't come. But the invitation goes wider. Look at verse 10. We're getting closer now to our text. Verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The invitation to the kingdom to have come back to this feast with God goes wider. Goes wider, doesn't it? This is not me making this up. Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, didn't they? It was necessary. They're speaking to the Jews now. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And praise God they did, isn't it? because we are Gentiles, most of us here today. The invitation goes to Samaria. It goes to Asia Minor. It goes to Europe. It comes to Wales. It comes to the Heath Church. It comes to you this morning, to you in the pew. This invitation this morning is called the gospel, you know. It's the good news in a world filled with bad news it's called the love story of God where he gave his son to bring us back into the feasting table of his presence. Isn't it wonderful? The invitation is now for everyone. The invitation is powerful. Whoever believes in me, you shall have eternal life. 
This invitation is effective. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, it's even personal, isn't it? Come unto me, you, you, who are laboring and are heavy laden, I, I will give you, you, rest. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loves you this morning. We sang yesterday in uh, Mrs. Denton's funeral, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you know that this morning, friends? The message of the kingdom is that you turn, turn from your rebellion, say sorry, but say thank you for Jesus, isn't it? It's simple, even a child can understand, and yet some of you are as hard now as when you first walked in here, and you're there thinking, when is he going to get to point number two? <laughs> but point number one is important, the invitation the message of the kingdom speaks of the bridegroom. Jesus of Nazareth passes by, doesn't he? Every time the gospel goes out, Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And you don't know whether he'll pass by again. So the invitation now to the feast is for everyone. But secondly, there's not only an invitation to the feast. There's an imposter, isn't there, at the feast? Look at verse 11. There was a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. We live near MacArthur Glen. And uh, when my sister got married, she wanted us all to have light grey suits with white shirts, light blue tie and yellow flower. Very nice. And uh, she wanted us all to wear the same thing. So Dan very handsome man, went into the changing room and he came out with a suit. He was appropriately dressed. Then I went in. I came out, a slightly larger version of Dan, but I too was appropriately dressed. Then my father came out, the father of the bride. And he had a suit jacket on, and I can't remember, he either had his jeans on or... Uh, we didn't want to wear the waistcoat because he said, I feel claustrophobic. And he doesn't like suits. But Esther said to him, Dad, unless you're appropriately dressed, you're not coming. <laughs> you're not giving me away. <laughs> and ancient kings, back to the parable, would often give outfits, wouldn't they, to wedding guests. So the people have been called, invited into the wedding. And imagine now Gerald out there at the front and the pews were there this morning. And as you come in, they give you an outfit from Coco Chanel or something of that sort. That was, the, that was what they did in these weddings. So to refuse the garment at the door is nuts, isn't it? Crazy. The man had been invited. Can you see him? Imagine him there in the in the doors out there. He comes in, he's been invited, but then he says, I don't need that garment you're offering me. I'm coming in in my own. I'm doing it my way. This is not a, this is not a critique of anyone's dress this morning. We're in the land of symbolism. <laughs> in his head, he thought, great, I'm here now. I'm safe. 
I don't need any extra thing, as it were. He was inappropriately dressed. That's what the parable teaches us. What is Jesus saying here? My friends, receiving an invitation to God's kingdom does not guarantee inclusion. It's a difficult message to preach this morning, but it's laid on my heart. Yes, everyone who hears the gospel is invited, and you come as you are, you know. You come as you are. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly. You don't stay naked when you come to Jesus spiritually. Listen to John MacArthur. The imposter's lack of a proper garment indicates that he has purposely rejected the king's own garments. You see? The wedding garment is a symbol here, my friends. And I wonder, what are you dressed in this morning? Ben and I were talking yesterday about this text, and we wondered how Mr. Spurgeon would have tackled it. And I can tell you what he would have done, I think. I haven't looked, but I think he would have done something like this. Perhaps you're wearing your national costume this morning. Are you Welsh? Are you proud Welshman? I am. Perhaps you're an Englishman or a Scotsman. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. Perhaps you're wearing your denominational dress, your Baptist blazer, or your EMW association. It doesn't make a diddly squat of a difference, you know. You may even be wearing your parents' clothes, young ones, children. And you know, you don't want to be wearing your parents' clothes, do you? because they'll be baggy, they don't fit you, because they're not yours. What I mean, if there's any children still here, you must love and know the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. Mammy and Daddy's faith is not enough. You older children here, Mammy, we're all children, aren't we? <laughs> Mammy and Daddy's faith is not your faith. The most dangerous outfit of all, though, brothers and sisters, is your own righteousness, isn't it? Wynne mentioned this yesterday in the, in the service. Isaiah, the great prophet, speaks of our own works, trying to do it myself. I did it my way. Frank Sinatra's song, that's weaving your own outfit, you know, and it's rubbish. Isaiah goes further. He says that this clothing is stained with dung, filthy rags, no good. Because even my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even my prayers, even my tears of repentance need washing in the blood of the Lamb. This is not a New Testament thing, brothers and sisters. Right in the days of Zechariah, you remember that vision he had of the high priest Joshua, and he stripped, isn't he? of his filthy garments, Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5. And to him he said, Behold, notice this is wonderful, I have taken your iniquity away. It's not my business to clean you up. Only Christ can cleanse. I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I, I will clothe you, says Jesus back in the days of Zechariah, with pure 
vestments. In the New Testament, we see the same Jesus Christ saying through his servant Paul, for our sake, he made the Lord Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died in my place. He took my rags, as it were, and gave me a new robe through faith. This clothing is precious, brothers and sisters. This robe is beautiful. How can you remain your heads drooping this morning? This robe was spun at the cross. It's material dyed red. One of the greatest of our hymns, isn't it? And was it for my sin, my wrongdoing, my thoughts, my filth, that Jesus suffered so? It's for you, not for John over the road. Thy holy law fulfilled, atonement now is made, and our great debt too great for us. He now has fully paid. You see, he suffered in his own person. On the tree, he took the penalty due for your sin. This is our bridegroom this morning. Why would you refuse the robe? He bore the wrath of God for you. And yet you're thinking about your chicken dinner. Maybe. Maybe not. The blood of Jesus Christ, our great substitute, was spilled in order to procure this robe for you. So why would you hand it away? Oh, my friends, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, thy, my beauty, are my glorious dress. You see the hymn writer is piling on the images here. Midst flaming worlds in these arrays, with joy shall I lift up my head. Are you covered this morning? Have you been saved? Are you wearing this robe of righteousness? Because when I stand before a holy God and he goes through my life and judges me at that end of time, you know the wonderful thing about the gospel? That my hero stands in between me and, the, and God, the judge, in a way, and, and he says, Nathan Monday, I have him covered. I have him covered. Hallelujah, because I would be doomed otherwise. That's why I'm up here, you know. This only happens when I believe in him alone. We come to the kingdom dressed in Christ's perfection, not in our good works. You may say, ah, yes, I profess faith when I was in camp. I'm all right. Yeah, but listen to Calvin. Let us not flatter ourselves with the empty title of faith, but let every man and woman seriously examine themselves that at the final review he may be pronounced to be one of the lawful guests. For the words of Christ mean nothing more than this, that the external profession of faith is not a sufficient proof that God will acknowledge as his people all who appear, who appear to have accepted his invitation. Examine yourselves this morning. Frightening, isn't it? Romans 10 talks about confession and belief. 
in your heart and with your mouth. Hebrews talks about a race. Those who endure to the end shall, are the ones who are saved, isn't it? Are you truly justified this morning? Because if so, remember, it cannot be a sterile thing. It's not just an announcement and then you're all right, as it were. It is. You are justified. You are, in God's eyes, secured. But notice the context where Christ mentions this, this parable. Genuine faith will bear fruit. Will bear fruit. Faith without works, James says, is dead. Faith, remember Jesus' words. I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people bearing the fruits of it. Are you bearing fruit this morning? Are you wearing the robe of his righteousness? This man was an imposter, you see. Are you? Are you? So we've had the invitation to the feast, which is now for all. You can come this morning. We're still, you still have time. There's still time. There's not only an invitation, there's an imposter. We must ensure that we're not an imposter. And finally, there's an inquiry, isn't there? Right at the end of the feast. A frightening inquiry. Notice verse 11. But when the king came. So in the parable now, the stages of redemptive history. When the king came. We're talking about the end of time. When God comes back to judge the living and the dead. A day is coming when each one of you will stand before the king. Will you be covered? The Bible describes that day like the sun rising, doesn't it? Powerful. I think Andy is in that area of Scripture, isn't he? With healing in his wings, yes, to those who are his. But if you're not covered this morning, your fate is written in verse 13. Look, I really find it hard to preach on this. Bind him hand and foot. Hand, you can no longer do anything. Foot, you can't go anywhere anymore. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. We're told in verse 12 that he was speechless. He was speechless because he had no excuse, brothers and sisters. He was speechless because he was afraid. He was speechless because his time had run out. What about you? You will be speechless because you were here this morning. You have no excuse now. And it's a frightening thing. You will be speechless because you too will be afraid in that day. Because you were here this morning. And you remember this feeble attempt at a sermon. But the message was clear. Flee from the wrath to come. He is taken, isn't he, out of the presence of the king and cast into a place of weeping and regret. And this parable echoes those words of Psalm 112, verse 10. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth in regret and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. But there's great hope this morning, isn't there? <laughs> Do you see where we're going? Because we know Christ has not yet come, has he? 
This is a future we're talking about. I beg you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to listen this morning. We're still in the dressing room. We're still in the dressing room. The king has not yet come. There is still time. We're in the dressing room. And I'm not the one who saves you. I'm just a messenger. I'm like the person at the door offering you. Offering you a garment. It's not my garment. I haven't made it. It's the robe of righteousness. I'm pointing you this morning to a saviour who will help you when you come to that final challenge, which is death. I'm pointing you to Jesus. May you be clothed this morning in the garments of salvation before you're wrapped in a shroud. It's grim, isn't it? But it's true. Today is a happy day because Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the feast. But through me. But through me. There's an invitation this morning and Jesus says, come. Remember the imposter. Having the invitation isn't enough. And finally, prepare yourself for the inquiry. Are you ready? The feast is ahead of us. And I hope to see you there. I really do. For his name's sake. Amen. Lord, we have touched on sacred things this morning. Urgent things. Lord, we know that uh, we have nothing good in ourselves. Yet we thank you for Jesus. The great shepherd of his sheep. The one who gathers. The one who is our bridegroom. The one who is our refuge. The one who is our shield. The one who is our forerunner. That if we are attached to him, we are safe. Oh, may all of us be clothed in his righteousness this morning. May we not wait until we're wrapped in a shroud. We ask this now in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. We're just, in case you haven't got it, 514 514, Jesus is the lover of my soul. Let me to his bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me. Can you say this? Oh, my Saviour, hide till the storm of life be past, safe into the haven guide, or receive my soul at last. Let's worship together.
O Lord God, we thank you that there is healing, there is life for a look at the crucified one this morning. And God, we are shaking a bit after just thinking about that parable. Oh, may we all inquire ourselves as to whether we are suitably dressed this morning. And if we are, may we be happy. May we remember that he is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory at that great feast with exceeding joy to God our Saviour now, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. <laughs> 